Steve had just talked to me a little bit about coming and talking about Freedom for Youth. So thank you all for the opportunity to come share with you a little bit of what's going on in that ministry. Okay, this is going to be a test because I can't read it back there, but this is the mission statement of Freedom for Youth. And Freedom for Youth, the mission is to empower youth by the love of Jesus Christ, to break bondages, discover their God-given talents, and lead transformed lives. I'm very excited to be part of a mission like that because at the center of it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power not only to save us from our sins and, and from eternal punishment from our sins, but also to lead transformed lives and for the youth to learn that through Jesus and through the creation of God that they can break bondages and we all live at a minimum in the bondage of sin, but then there's addictions, there's poverty, there's, you know, sexual addictions and involvement that youth are in, drugs, all kinds of things that keep youth from experiencing their true uh, God-given talents. And so we also try to instill in the kids that they are made in the image of God, that they do have a specific and individual gift that plays into their future and gives them a bright future and that they can lead as a result a transformed life so there's kind of four things that freedom for youth focuses on and they spell out the word feel but there's faith education employment and leadership and faith is the foundation of it all so every week when we do program we make sure that that we tell the kids the gospel and as paul said i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So again, every week the kids hear the gospel when they come to Freedom for Youth. And that's, an, that's the foundation of all that we do. We also believe education is important. So we try to support what's going on in the kids' educational environment. As you can see, the uh, kids there on the right, they're learning about Newton's laws of motion while they make snowball launchers but also learn that God is the one that upholds all things through the word of his power. And then we do some buddy reading time and things like that to support the kids' um, growth in education. As far as employment or employability, with the younger ages, that's a little more subtle. So we, we try to expose kids to different things that might be interesting to them. So here you see they're, they're not really building something, they're tearing something apart, seeing what's inside of a remote control truck and a dehumidifier, or humidifier. And so we just try to expose kids to different things, different activities that might bring out some of their gifts and interests. Um, as you get into the programs for the older age kids, they will get more and more into specific employment skills. We have done some woodworking skills I know Norb and, and Rod have been involved in the Des Moines campus on teaching the kids some things, and perhaps others of you too, um, some skills that directly can lead to them supporting themselves in the future. And then uh, leadership skills. And we focus on servant leadership and good character. Here you see the kids deep in thought, trying to plan how they can get across the Lava River with four stepping stones and five or six kids in the least amount of time. So just different character things that we try to build into the kids. This is our group at Hartford. I'm the site director for Hartford and Carlisle. So these are the, you'll see, the, this is the group at Hartford and then the next picture is the, the group at Carlisle. And so these are the kids that come once a week after school and do the activities and hear the Bible story and then we eat the meal together. Um, maybe you wanna be involved somehow. So first of all, uh, prayer, you know, is very key to what we do. We need your. I've got some pictures of a few of the boys here, and I won't name them, but I'll tell you something. There, one of the boys came to us in August or September, and and he said that he had never heard of Jesus before. And this boy grew up in Carlisle. He's probably within a five-block walk of four different churches, but he hasn't heard of Jesus. Well, he's heard of Jesus now. But just pray for him to to receive Jesus and God's plan in his life. One of the boys, the school, referred his grandparents to Freedom for Youth. They called because he moved to the school. He wasn't making connections in school. He was having a hard time, so they called the school, and the school told him 
he should go to Freedom for Youth. So we're thankful that the public school is engaging with us in that way. And he, I could see kind of wonder in his eyes as we talked about the gospel and the fact that God gave his son for us, for our sins. And I asked him afterwards, do you want to receive Jesus as your Savior? And he said, yes. I said, well, do you want to pray about it? He said, well, actually, when you prayed, I prayed. So pray, pray for him because you don't know what's going on in their hearts. And then another one of these young men was kind of unburdening his heart of the social issues he's dealing with at school, with churches, um, his parents, his family, and the struggles that he's having. And then... <laughs> At supper time, he wanted to give thanks for the food. And it was very touching because as he gave thanks, he said, thank you, God, for the sad things, too, because we know that those make us stronger. So all of these kids come with a variety of backgrounds, a variety of issues, and we just seek the wisdom of God to touch them where they're at and apply the gospel to uh, their needs, bring about spiritual growth. We do, this week, we're actually starting middle school program in Carlisle, which is kind of exciting to me. I've been praying about that for a while, and God has given us a couple of volunteers who will be able to take the middle schoolers and, and teach them. And in middle school, we start focusing a little bit more on that individual design that God has put on you as an individual uh, and how to discover that and explore that. We would also appreciate your prayers for a program coordinator. That's part of my job right now, but as... My responsibilities have been shifting around a little bit. We are looking for a program coordinator for Carlisle and Hartford to actually plan the program and, and coordinate the volunteers and get that going. So would appreciate your prayers for that as well. Other ways to be involved, make a meal. Ian has brought a meal. There's a picture up there of a casserole that Debbie made. And we brought home leftovers from Iwana supper. So you guys have been involved. We appreciate that. And there's more opportunities. There's a, a men's group from Lutheran Church of Hope there that came, and there's been other life groups that have come, and a, this is a, a young mom down here that picks up her kids from school and brings supper to us, it has done that a few times over the last few months. So we do feed the kids a meal every week when they come, and that's, so that's two meals a week. Financial support, there's no charge to the kids for this program, so all of the uh, finances come from people that want to join in the ministry financially. So there's opportunities for that. Uh, program supplies, again, we, we go through some paper towels and arts and crafts supplies and things like that. And then um, you may be interested in volunteering. And like I said, Rod and Norb at least have volunteered in the, at the Des Moines campus, which is much closer than Carlisle, but we can use volunteers in Carlisle too. And there's other sites Stewart and Huxley and Perry and Knoxville all have sites as well, and some of those need volunteers worse than others too. So if that's something that you would uh, like to get involved with, feel free. One other kind of fun thing, tomorrow, if you want to make your way down to the south side to Buffalo Wild Wings and you tell them that you're supporting Freedom for Youth, they'll um, give 10% of your ticket directly to Freedom for Youth. So um, you can eat wings and and support Freedom for Youth as well. But you have to come down to the south side. So thank you, appreciate you guys' interest and support, and if you have any questions, I think you all know where to find me. Psalm 148, verses one through 13. Just uh, listen to this uh, praise to God. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. From the heavens, praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and young women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens.
thank you. <clears throat> I want to thank the praise team and I want to thank Bob for coming and sharing and encourage you to visit with him afterwards and I just pray that we would see the opportunities we have and take part in encouraging him and his ministry. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'd appreciate if you'd uh, pray with me as we look to uh, God's word. Father, we come on this beautiful snowy day. Uh, we come to hear from you and I pray and ask that you'd help us to realize that it has to be your spirit that works to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. And it is not a word from a human being that will touch us or change us. It has to be a word that you speak into our hearts. And so open our eyes and give us receptivity to the truths that are contained in your word and use them to transform us into the people you want us to be, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a famous pastor who shared a story of two different individuals in his life that he had done significant ministry with. He'd had a great time with them doing ministry with people and sharing the gospel and even seeing people come to faith in Christ. Both of these men professed faith in Christ and later chucked it all. They'd kind of courted Christ. They'd kind of dabbled in discipleship. If you will, they'd test-driven the truth, decided that it really wasn't for them, and so they chucked it, just said no. And sadly, in some of our churches, actually I would say in every church, among some of our friends, even amongst our family, there are people who or like these people. And maybe they're contemplating now, or maybe they've already chosen that, yeah, the Christianity is just not for them. They're just going to forget it. And they're mingled in, typically, with Christians, believers, actual people who know Jesus, and some of these people, the, some of us who know Christ, are also sometimes challenged and struggling and kind of doubting. So, like, we don't know really, you know, we, we believe, but we're, you know, it's kind of like the, the guy, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, and we're struggling. There's always been, and there will continue to be, I guess, as long as we're on this earth, this danger of being exposed to enough of the truth to inoculate us against its impact. And that's the danger in the church. Those of us who grew up in the church... It becomes so familiar with church stuff that it doesn't really make a difference in our lives. And the author of Hebrews understood the danger of pretend faith. The danger of those who professed but didn't really possess faith in Christ. And we come this morning in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 39 to yet another of the warnings that he gives to this group of people. To those who have a pretend faith. Probably as no other place in the Bible, this passage speaks directly to the dangers of and then provides deterrence to this sort of a dabbling with Christianity. This sort of pretend faith, this professing. And he speaks primarily to those who, well, they, they've heard but they haven't heeded the gospel. They are nearly but not quite believing. And then there are others who just haven't believed at all, don't really care, and maybe they're in the church, just stumbled in, you know, hey, I'm here, I'll see what it's all about. And then there are another group of people that I think this text provides encouragement to, and that's those who know faith in Christ, know Christ, but they just need to be encouraged to press on and, and keep going in their faith. And so if you take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 26 through 39, and here the writer underscores three compelling incentives for exercising genuine faith and escaping the tragedy of apostasy. This is a real antidote for apostasy in the text. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 
26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no no pleasure in him. We are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's a sober text. It's a sobering text. We see the first of these incentives is is our possible destruction demands a genuine faith. The four which begins, at least in the New American Standard, is the very first word in verse 26. The four gives the explanation as to why the coming day is significant, which he just mentioned in verse 25. Why is this coming day significant to us? The reality of apostasy, which he deals with in verses 26 through 39, in light of the proximity of the coming day of Christ's return, creates an urgency for a genuine faith. Because Christ is coming, there is a need for genuine faith because when Christ comes, then it's all decided. And so now, there needs to be a genuine faith. And there's two characteristics of apostasy which are laid out in the text. And first, in verse 26, there is a reception of the truth. He says, for after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, I know I skipped the first part of verse 26, so I did that intentionally, okay? After receiving a knowledge of the truth. So there is a reception. What does it mean to receive the knowledge of the truth? It means that the gospel has been presented and presumably accepted. Okay, It's been declared and presumably accepted. I like what John MacArthur says on this verse. He says, an apostate can be bred only in the brilliant light of proximity to Christ. Apostates come from within the church. And so it's my understanding and it's my interpretive slant to this text that this is a text that speaks to those who are in the church professing to be believers but not truly possessing genuine faith in Jesus. An apostate is one who after receiving the truth does what? He receives the truth then after receiving it he rejects it. That's the second aspect of it. How is he described? Well, verse 26, the very first part, he says, and if we go on sinning willfully, which just tells me a couple of different things. So there's, there's sinning, he goes on sinning. That's what the text says. If you go on sinning, which means perpetual sin. So the sin is perpetual. It's something that continues on. And then willfully means it's intentional. I mean, some of us keep sinning, but we just really don't know that we're sinning. That's not an excuse. We'd still be judged for that. But it's like we just don't know. This is perpetual, willful, or perpetual, intentional sin. I know a business owner, a private business owner, who for years had one of his employees 
stealing money from him. Perpetual, intentional stealing. Here, this is a perpetual, intentional sinning. Apostasy is perpetual and intentional rejection of the truth. After it has been clearly presented. And so the author warns these so-called believers, those who have received it, quote-unquote, and then have not followed through with it, to avoid the penalty of what comes to those who don't truly receive the truth. The consequences of apostasy are twofold, and we see, first of all, he says in verse 27, or the end of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's permanent separation. So he's describing somebody who's going to be permanently separated from God. So it's permanent separation. Perpetual intentional sin is a mark of unbelief. We went through the whole gospel of 1 John here um, several months ago. In 1 John chapter 2, we see that the mark of unbelief is disobedience. You say that you've come to know me and do not keep my commandments. The one who says he has come to know me and does not keep my commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's unbelief. And since that person is an unbeliever, they have rejected the sacrifice of Christ, which is the only provision for their sin. And so there is no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. It's impossible, impossible, as it says in Hebrews 6.6, 6, to renew them to repentance. It's impossible. So that's the kind of person that's being described here. And secondly, since there's uh, this, this person, is, there's a terrifying expectation, verse 27, a certain, I like that, a certain terrifying expectation. In the Greek text, the word terrifying comes first. For emphasis. A certain terrifying, a terrifying certain expectation, which describes painful suffering. So it's permanent separation and painful suffering. Those are the consequences of apostasy. I remember as a child, now, some don't, those of you who don't know my father, my father is six foot two and about 230 pounds, and he was about that same size when I was growing up, maybe a little, little lighter. And uh, as a child growing up, I didn't uh, lip off to my dad. I didn't say, well, you make me, or uh, I don't want to. Because there was a certain terrifying expectation, certain severe and swift judgment would come. I didn't want to experiment with what it would be like to pick myself up on the opposite side of the floor. My dad's old school. Uh, so it's just like it's my way or the highway. At least he was then. He's softened now. But this is the way it was. So he says, the author of Hebrews says, there's a terrifying. Now, interesting, isn't it? You say, well, if this person is apostate and they have received the knowledge of the truth in the sense that they've heard it, but they haven't accepted it, then they really don't care. They're not expecting a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. No, they aren't. But judgment expects them. Judgment is waiting. They should be expecting it, but they don't. But there is a, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And notice the, 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 the end of it in verse 27. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Which is a quote of Isaiah 26. Okay. And so the gruesome devastation promised to the enemies of God's people in Isaiah 26, 11 will come upon his adversaries, those who reject him. If we read Matthew chapter 13, you have the story of the wheat and the tares. And at the end of the story, the tares, which represent unbelievers, are thrown into a fiery furnace. Painful suffering. So those who reject Jesus, there is permanent separation from God and there is painful suffering. And so to punctuate this whole potent and powerful message probably the strongest warning in the Bible concerning the end of all those who hear but don't heed the truth the author provides us two reasons for their plight in verses 28 and 29 28 through 30 actually what is, what is the reason why is it that there's such severity of their punishment well verse 28 he gives first a rational reason 
And there's argument in the text from the lesser to the greater. Verse 28, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, which, and for those of you who haven't been with us through our study of Hebrews, we've already established that the law of, the Mo- of Moses, though it is not inconsequential or unimportant, it is less significant. It's the lesser, the least important, because the new covenant with Jesus is the superior covenant. Okay, so if under the old covenant, at the given the number of appropriate witnesses, two witnesses, you die an unmerciful death if you violate it, how much more, how much more severe will be the punishment if you violate the more important covenant? That's the argument from the lesser to the greater. Reason will conclude that this will be. And why is that? What 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 is it? The big deal. Well, he gives us three indictments against the apostate that make this understandable. First of all, he says in in verse 29, How much severe the punishment you think he will deserve? Who has, this person who has, what? Trampled underfoot the Son of God. Okay, parents, anything that you have ever taught your kids that they shouldn't walk on? What are the things that you tell your kids? Don't walk on this. Well, when we were, when our kids were at home, we don't walk on clean clothes. You know, we just, we just, we just washed them. Don't walk on your pillow. You know, you're going to lay your head on it and sleep on it. And don't walk on each other. You know, just because your sister's laying on the floor, she is not the floor. You know, do you understand that we walk on that which we consider worthless? He says, you trampled underfoot the Son of God and Jesus. You've relegated him to a doormat. You demean the Son of God when you walk on, on Jesus. You hold, it graphically portrays the contempt that they hold for Christ. And secondly, they discredit the blood of Christ, it says in verse 29. That they regard it as unclean. What does that mean? That they hold in contempt the sacrifice of Christ as if it was just any other kind of a sacrifice. It's no big deal that Jesus died on the cross. It's insufficient to forgive sins. And then there's this interesting phrase, which is there... It says, by which he, has, he was sanctified. Now, if you're growing up in the church, that's code word for a believer. I mean, he was sanctified. Well, I think it means, in this context, that this is a person who was identified with those who are believers, either by their profession or simply by their association. They considered themselves to be set apart for God, but they really weren't regenerate people and that's because they trampled on Christ that they degraded his sacrifice and finally they insulted the Holy Spirit they, they, they degraded the Spirit now what does it mean to insult the Holy Spirit you insult the Holy Spirit and it says in Ephesians 4:30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin who enlightens us to the truth. Uh, this we saw in chapter 10, I think, uh, verse, verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. The Spirit of God is the, the person in the Godhood who, who works to regenerate us and seals us. And so to insult the Spirit is to, to grieve the Spirit of God. It's to close our spiritual eyes to the light of the truth. It's to harden our heart against the Spirit's work in our life to to the point that we are unredeemable. I think he's referring, if you will, to what Matthew refers to in Matthew 12, which would be the unpardonable sin. He's insulted the Spirit. He's hardened himself against so that there's no possible redemption, no possible reconciliation. It's impossible to renew him to repentance. This is the person. F.F. Bruce says, These actions denote contempt of the most flagrant kind. Such hubris deserves severe punishment. 
I don't know, in your home, but when we had uh, kids who were little, they couldn't run in the house, just willy-nilly, you know. There were places they could run, but you can't just tear around the house and run over somebody or something or somebody else. And if they did, there were consequences to pay. But let me tell you what, that's a far less consequence to pay than if I'm speeding at 60 miles an hour down a residential street in Urbandale. The lesser to the greater. You violate the lesser law, yeah, there's punishment, but it's not nearly as severe as if you violate the most important law, which is the law of grace. You reject the person of Jesus. And literally, there is hell to pay. There's a second reason. It's not just a rational reason. There's a biblical reason. Even though I would argue that the rational reason is a biblical reason, there is a biblical reason that comes straight from the text. If you look at verse 30, in chapter 10, it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's justice against the wicked. That in Deuteronomy 32, which this is a quote from, Deuteronomy 32, 25, God's vengeance vindicated his people from their enemies. Now, that text is applied to the vengeance of God against his enemies. Go again. It vindicated God's people from their enemies. Now it's applied and says it is God's vengeance against his enemies. It's a severe punishment. It's a severe punishment. His people... And then the end of that verse is another quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. The Lord will judge his people. So these are kind of in uh, contrast to one another. The first is God's vengeance against his enemies. And the second is God's vindication of his own people. So when he judges his people, he's actually vindicating them by separating them out from the wicked. That's, I think, what the text is saying to me, or means. So that in Luke chapter 12, uh, there's this fishnet and the fishnet catches a bunch of fish and there's some good fish and some bad fish or you could go to Matthew 25 and you can do the separation of the sheep from the goats and so there's this separation that takes place that's what it means there is vengeance upon the enemies of God and there is vindication or there is deliverance for God's people God deals severely with those who reject his mercy and then we come full circle in verse 31 Notice the text. It says there's a terrifying expectation. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we do not speak of this enough. It's like, well, you know, again, I told you I heard, I think, uh, a very, very popular preacher who's on the radio, on TV. He was interviewed by Larry King Live. And he says, God has not called me to preach judgment and justice and God's wrath, but just the, the love of God. Where is the love of God without the justice and holiness of God? God has called us to preach the entire gospel. This is not a pleasant truth, but it is a truth. And if we don't tell people, if I don't tell you that God is a God of wrath and justice and all of us deserve His condemnation, then why would you turn from your sin to Him? a terrifying expectation you see if 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 we aren't sold out for Jesus the text says we're going to be wiped out if I'm not all in I'm all done so are you all in are you going to be all done I implore you, I plead with you. If you're here this morning and you are just sitting on the fence, you've just like you've come to church and you know the church stuff, you know the church lingo, but you've never totally surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait. This text paints a picture of you. In order to devoid, avoid destruction, we need genuine faith. That's what this text tells me. And I implore you to. Stop parading as a pretend believer and admit that you are a sinner who deserves God's judgment. You would believe that Jesus' death paid the price for your sins and confess Christ as Lord today and get it settled. Wave the white flag of surrender. 
and surrender to Christ. That's the first incentive. Secondly, our past dedication depicts genuine faith. What he does here is he, in in verses 32 through 35, there are two important questions that are answered to help some resist falling away and help those who know Christ to remain faithful. And the first question is, what are we supposed to remember? He says, verse 32, but remember the former days. Remember when it was 80 degrees, the sun was shining, and you were complaining about the humidity. Remember. Call to mind and refresh it in our minds, eyes. And he says, remember those days. And in verse 32, when after being enlightened, there it is again, after being enlightened, after having been exposed to the truth, You endured a great conflict of suffering. He's calling them to remember the spiritual springtime of their exposure to the gospel when under the persecution of Claudius, they were enduring hardship. That's what he says. Endured a great conflict of sufferings. And endure means to stick with it. Our middle daughter, Janae, was running at the state cross-country meet as a senior in high school, and she had horrible shin splints that she had you know, experienced right at the end of that season. And I sat in horror as I watched her try to run every step in excruciating pain. For three miles, she ran step after step after step with each step in agonizing pain. But she didn't stop. She endured to the end. He says endure. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to get there. He says, when you consider so great a cloud of witnesses, set aside the sin that so easily entangles you tangles you and run with endurance the race that is set before you considering Jesus the author and finisher of of your faith who for the joy that was set before him did what endured the cross he says endure you endured this you endured this conflict and conflict is the Greek word from which we get our English word athletics he's talking about there was a A tough athletic contest that they were involved in. They wrestled, if you will, with suffering in two ways. There was public humiliation. They were reproached, public reproach. And then there was physical, so that was verbal abuse. Then there was physical tribulation or or torment. And folks, these were people who had come alongside and they were part of it. It's not unique to them. Some of you here, you've experienced verbal abuse because of your faith. Even if you're maybe not even a committed Christian, you're just kind of like a pretend Christian. You know, you've kind of joined the crowd. You suffer persecution. And some have suffered physical persecution. We know in Egypt and India, and I could go on and all around the world, people are suffering physically for their faith. It's not a new thing. Joy Bihar, the, one of the co-hosts of The View, uh, said of our vice president, Michael Pence, that his practice of religion is borders on mental illness. Being a Christian is kind of a mental illness then, I guess. Or practicing Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, but if you actually practice certain beliefs, that's mental illness. Really? Well, this is the kind of thing that they endured. And so they were began. Then and then he says, secondly, by becoming sharers with those who were so treated in verse thirty-three. So these unbelievers that were attracted to the, the good things of the gospel and the love and the community of believers, they stood up and stood with and stood by those who were persecuted, and they shared with them compassion, sympathy. That means they didn't just feel it in their gut; they did something about it. That's what real compassion is. 
I, mean, I can feel badly that somebody has to experience something, but it's not until I go there and, and help them or pray with them or talk to them or serve them or give to them or share with them that there's real compassion. And that's what they did. They displayed the true marks of believers. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 verse 36 says, uh, Jesus says that if you come to me and naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. That's the display, the kinds of things they did. And then they had compassion and then they, I, I, I always stumble on this one. They celebrated the confiscation of their stuff. We, we, we have no concept of what that is. I heard a missionary named Joseph Tsan share about his experience as a Christian in Romania when the, under communist rule. He was a believer who was a pastor and the secret police came to his house. They barged in and they started boxing up his books in his library to steal them and take them and burn them. He called out to his wife and he says, Honey, make some tea for our guests. They did this because they believed they had a better possession. That's what the text says. And an abiding one. The books will burn. But life with Christ will not. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, it's undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what they held to. And some of them didn't even know Jesus. But they were believing, yeah, okay, I, I think this is maybe something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to. Or Kent Hughes says, these folks exhibited amazing spiritual athleticism. Now, why are we to remember? That's what we're to remember, but, you know, remember the dedication of the past. But why? Verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Now, this is the same word that we saw back in chapter 10, verse 9. Confidence means firm certainty or access to God, our firm certainty of our access to God. Don't throw that confidence away because you have to endure. Through suffering, endured, and fellowship enjoyed, they, uh, they hoped that these unbelievers would truly turn and trust Christ and the believers would be encouraged to press ahead even in the face of persecution. Endurance together encourages a renewed sense that God is going to take us on. I don't know about you, but when you go through suffering with other people, it kind of steals your conviction that God is, yep, he's with us and we can make it by God's grace. And that's what the author hoped that these people would do, would hold on to. I don't know if you know about the Waldensias, but these were the uh, famed aerial acrobats, aerialists, you know. They'd walk across the tight ropes at, you know, un insanely high points. Well, the Carl Waldensia, the father of it all, was walking in San Juan, Puerto Rico, 75 feet above the ground, and he fell and he died. His wife said this of him. All Carl thought about for three straight months prior to his performance was falling. Carl Waldena, Walenda, I'm sorry, Walenda, failed to remember his past successful performances. And in failing to do so, he lost sight of what, God, what he had done. And I'm thinking what we would look at is what God has done. And so he failed. The author here wants us to avoid spiritually what Walenda experienced physically. Don't, don't lose sight of it. Keep pressing on. And then he celebrates uh, the, the reward of our faith. He says at the end of verse 35, which has a great reward. So there is this need for us to have genuine faith if we're to avoid destruction. Our past dedication would propel us to accept that genuine faith is important. And finally, our promised deliverance depends on genuine faith. 
That's verses 36 through 39. The need for endurance and genuine faith is communicated three ways. First, a need for genuine faith is articulated in verse 36. For, which begins the verse, for you have need, introduces the reason for not throwing away our confidence. We have need for endurance. And the only power that we have that will give us ability to endure is the person of Jesus. So if we forsake our confidence, our firm access to the Father, we have no power to endure. Endurance is necessary. We need endurance, patience, and deliberate continuance. And the author links endurance. Notice he says in verse 36, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance. For, so that when you have done the will of God, so he links endurance with obedience, because that's what he's talking about. It's enduring as you are obeying. And if you endure in obedience, then the result or the end result is receiving what, we, what was promised. Now you think, okay, so that's it. It really is about work salvation. You know, if we endure in obedience, then we get the reward. That's not what he's saying. He, that's what he's saying, but he's not saying that Obedience is what results in our reward. It is the reason we are rewarded is that we have proven that we are genuine through our obedience. Endurance is evidence of genuine faith. Okay? Endurance and obedience is evidence of genuine faith. Endurance and obedience is the evidence that our profession is truly our possession. Because only those who truly believe, truly behave. Okay? That's what I think he's saying. Secondly, the need for genuine faith is validated in verses 37 and 38. Now, this is a quote of Habakkuk chapter 2. But there's a subtle change. There's a change to he. It says, for yet in a very little while he... In Habakkuk 2, it says it. The change to he, here, intentionally, reveals that the final fulfillment of God's vindication of his people, which is what he's talking about in Habakkuk chapter 2, because they're under the threat of Babylon. He says, don't worry about it. Even though it's bad now, I'm going to take care of it. The, the ultimate and final vindication is when Christ returns. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 10. Certain and soon return of Christ. And notice he says, for yet in a very little while. He'll come to save his own and judge the rest. Until Christ returns. And then he says in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. That's endurance. Live by faith. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and all to the Gentile, for the just shall live by faith. There, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, but he's saying the just, the just by faith will live eternally. Here, he's saying the just who are just so, by faith will live by faith. If we really know Christ, we will act like it and we'll live out our lives in faith, endurance. And that's what he's saying. That's what my people will do. And when I come, I'll find them faithful. God only rewards those who remain faithful. And finally, the need for genuine faith is celebrated. Verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction. Now, I look at verse 39 kind of like this. Uh, you're, uh, you're coaching, you're coaching the, the, the Cyclones and they're, they're down by 10 points against Texas. And, uh, you know, you come into halftime. Or you're coaching the Hawkeyes and they're, you know, behind 10 points at the, in, in the bowl game, right? You know, you come in at halftime, you say, look, guys, this is not us. We're not playing like us. This is not who we are. He communicates to the players, the, the people in the church, he communicates to those people what they should be. What he wants them to be. And, and what some of them truly are. We're not these people who shrink back. That's not us. Come on. Get with the game. And maybe those who are the ones who would shrink back will be motivated. Yeah, that's not, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. And they come to faith. And those who are waning and waxing and struggling, they say, yeah, that's not who I am. I'm a believer. I'm going to live like it. He says, that's what you should do. 
We are, they're not those who shrink back to destruction. We're not the people enamored by the Christian faith, but really willing to chuck it when the going gets tough. No, that's not us. Destruction is an eternal plunge into Hades. Folks, hell is not a reformation school. David McLeod in his commentary in Hebrew says this. It's not a reformation school. Folks, this is final judgment. It's not like we're going to go there and get changed. No, we're going to go there and stay forever. And notice in strong contrast at the end of verse 39, it says, but we are these people of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Genuine faith is evidenced by endurance and obedience leans to internal glory. Endurance through faithful obedience leads to eternal glory. Rejection leads to eternal judgment and agony. So, possible destruction, past dedication, promised deliverance. There's your motivation, folks. Get on the train with Jesus. And if you're on the train, stay on the train. And in fact, stoke some coal into the furnace, you know, and get things going. In, in, in the train, keep the steam rolling. Intended to convince unbelievers to trust and believers to stay faithful in Christ. In the 1968 Olympics, the last man into the stadium in the marathon was limping very badly from an injury he had received during the race. The last one in, agonizingly, painfully making his way to the finish line, made his way to the finish line, and afterwards he was interviewed. A man from Tanzania. And they said, why did you finish? Here's what he said. My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the marathon, but to finish it. God didn't send his son, Jesus Christ, for us to start the Christian life and race, but to finish it. And now as we come and gather around the elements of communion, we understand that the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross symbolized in the bread and the cup, his body broken and his bloodshed, helps us remember, if we have accepted his death as a payment for our sin, that, hey, we have deliverance from destruction. It serves as an example and a motivation for us to be dedicated. And it offers us the promise of deliverance someday. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to take these elements with joy and celebration. Reflect on what Christ has done. Confess your sin that you know of. Come with a clean heart and take. And if you don't know Christ, admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died and confess him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text which serves to call those who are pretending to genuine faith and those of us who know you to persevering faith. We pray in Jesus' name.